You're listening to the Versus Node podcast, presented by GamerNode.com. Welcome to episode 34 of the Versus Node podcast. I'm Eddie Inzotto, your host and editor-in-chief of GamerNode.com, and I'm here with the GamerNode hooligans. We have Dan Crabtree, Hello. Jason Finelli. I prefer to be more of a scalawag. Okay. And first time on Versus Node, we have Josh Robinson. Hola. Ah, he's, he's a little Spanish today. Yo hablo espanol, and that's about <laughs> all I got. <laughs> so how you doing there, Josh? Uh, how does it feel to be on Versus Node for the first time? Uh, it's super exciting. <laughs> you Can't sound you so excited. <laughs> awesome. jazzed. I'm thrilled, man. Yeah, I'm jazzed. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Happy, happy to, to be us, here. Coming to us from the, the not-so-deep south the mountains of North Carolina. Yes, sir. And doesn't sound Southern at all, which was surprising to me. I found out on our Extra Life <laughs> Marathon uh, a couple of weeks ago. Or was it last week? Last week? Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard someone with like a deep Southern accent talk critically about games. Hmm. Mm. But I would love to hear that. That yeah. would be incredible. I think well, I can... I can do my best. <laughs> can we do that for the rest of the show? It's like a Gomer Pyle no, accent. No, no, no. No, I won't do it. I refuse. Anyway, anyway, what we're here to talk about, well, we're here to continue our our slightly delayed series on the last generation of consoles, looking back as we approach the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. And um, t- we've already done most overrated and most underrated. Now we're going to take a... a slight shift and we're gonna look more critically i think at games that we think were the best examples of ludonarrative consonants big words yes many many big words and what we mean by ludonarrative consonants is games that married narrative and gameplay the best or or had gameplay that best expressed their intended narrative arcs um now this this term actually is is derived from ludonarrative dissonance it's just the opposite uh which is a a, a term coined by clint hawking in a somewhat famous article in games journalism about the original bioshock um and he used bioshock to explain ludonarrative dissonance, and, and we're gonna we're gonna look at games that were the opposite of what he was describing. And the funny thing is, Dan chose a game and is going to start us out with the earliest game of all the games that we are planning to talk about, and it happens to be Bioshock. That's the right. <laughs> well, it's mostly just because I disagree with Clint Hawking, is okay. and, and or uh, rephrase it. I don't think I disagree with him. I agree with him, but I don't think he went far enough. So basically his argument having to do with Bioshock and also try to put this in context. So this is me. I'm a freshman in college. I don't really know anything about gaming in a critical sense yet. And Bioshock comes along the summer before. 
I'm entering college and I play it, I finish it at school and my mind is just cracked wide open. And I'm like, I didn't know that games could do this, particularly at the moment, which if you've not played Bioshock, just stop listening right now and go do that, please. Like, no, don't. Just, make, just, just, go, <laughs> just go do that and then, then come back, obviously. <laughs> pause it. Yeah, pause it. Play 20 hours of Bioshock. The entire game. <laughs> then come back. Okay. So the moment in Bioshock, we, uh, a man chooses a slave obeys. So that totally cracked me open and said, hey, games can do what you're learning about in novels. Um, they can talk about the art itself, um, have this meta narrative. It's also called emergent narrative when talking about games. So Clint Hawking's take on it was that um, Bioshock's message did not make sense. That it was saying... Uh, are you a man or a slave? And then it was making you a slave. To which I would say, yeah, that's the point. Um, and, and and I think, the, so what you're seeing there is you have this game that causes you, if you're going to play it, to do all of these things, to go through and murder all of these people. And eventually you get to a point where you're going to murder Andrew Ryan and it actually takes the control, importantly, out of your hands at that moment and you murder Andrew Ryan. Uh, the the point being that you are, as a player, a slave to the frame that the game developer has put in front of you, that the game itself is an enslaving device. Uh, and he argued that that's dissonant, that that effect is, is, to, is telling you that when you are making choices in the game, you're not making choices. And he didn't make, thought that makes, made sense. Because you make some choices by degree, right? Like you choose, hey, I'm going to shoot this guy first or this guy first. Um, I would argue that it's more of an overall trajectory uh, take that that they're saying. Uh, and anyone, feel free to jump in if, if they disagree with this. Um, that the consonance actually comes with recognizing that there is dissonance. Does that make sense? That there's this... There's this very clear disparity between, hey, I'm a slave and I'm a gamer who's choosing to play this game and do it the way that I want, and the game telling me that I'm a slave and causing me to do these things. But by realizing that and making that so obvious to the player and having this monologue, a man chooses a slave, obeys, uh, that that in itself sort of writes the narrative and, and puts you almost in the seat of the developer. So you're looking at yourself kind of laughing. It's like um, I, I, the the example that I think of that comes to mind, I don't know if you've ever been to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Orlando. I'm, I'm going to – this will make sense. I'm taking your mortar and bringing it back to the Shire. It will make sense. <laughs> so there's a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in, in Orlando and – uh, there's you walk through the museum and there's one part where there's a, a mirror and they say, hey, make all these faces like these crazy people make. And so you look at the mirror and you make these faces at the very end of the museum. You go around and you find out that was a that was a one way mirror. So you can actually see people on the other side of it making those faces and you get to just stand there and watch them trying to make these faces. And you're like in on it. Right. So now you get the joke, but it was played on you just nay 10 minutes ago uh 
And I think that's sort of the effect of Bioshock as well, is that at that moment it says, hey, you're in on this now. You, you're you a part. And then it has the, the last third that's just not the best. I, I wouldn't call it garbage, but it's it's not up to the same standard, and, you know, the last battle with Fontaine and everything. But up until that point where I would call the real end of Bioshock is when you have this aha moment and they say, hey, you're in on this now. You get that we're tricking you. Um, right. And I, th- I think it's a real slight and it's an important slight because it caused a lot of people to think real hard about games and not and not even get that far, but just start thinking about like, wait, why are you calling me a slave? <laughs> and, and a lot of game developers, too, at that time saw that and, that and it had a dramatic effect on how they thought about designing games. Um, and you can see this, uh, you know, certainly we'll talk about plenty of other games now. And uh, we were talking before Eddie's point was that there's so many games now. And so uh, there's such a concentration in the last, so this is 2007, the last six years of games that consider meta narrative, that consider ludo narrative consonants, because there was sort of this shining beacon towards the beginning. And there's one or two others, I think, at that at that time of saying, guys, look at what we're doing. Gaming can do this high-level high thought process stuff that you didn't think it could do. Um, for, for me, that was that's why I, I always go and tell people to play Bioshock is because I think it was the first to do that so well. Uh, that's my take. Yeah, yeah, I never thought of Bioshock actually as a ludonarratively dissonant game. Because to be honest, the mere suggestion that you're not in control of what you're doing is so resoundingly truthful to me. Because everything that you're doing was programmed. Even if you choose to shoot guy A or guy B, that is a choice that you can only make because the the programmers made that a choice for you. And and it's not a choice because you're going to do it no matter what. You're going to do one or the other. So, I mean, even even free will in general at this point is is sort of um, questioned by, for example, by Sam Harris, um, a neuroscientist, questions whether free will ever, ever is really true because you only have so many options that you could potentially select from. But um, in video games, it's obviously way, way, way more narrow. Um, so, so for Bioshock to be like, hey, this is what video games are, and we're gonna, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna put it in your face and make you think, you know what? You're you're really right. Um, I think that put gaming very much in perspective, and and made everything that I was doing throughout the game just feel so much more real and resonant and and absolutely uh a, a married to the narrative um so I'm yeah and, you, Dan. And, and and i think you you draw an, an important point there that it had this sense of being a, a discussion on games but it was also very much a microcosm of a, a larger discussion of determinism what you're pointing to and and uh objectivist views or or the the free will argument that do you actually have free will or is every you know nature versus nurture are you just a series of events right uh, and 
I don't think that there's an answer to that question, right? Yeah. I think that well, maybe there, own... maybe there is, and we just can't figure it out. <laughs> well, if there was one answer and we could prove it, then we would all believe it at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. that's my take. If it's still a debate, and I think that's that's always always where the best novelists and the best movie makers, and now where the best game designers go is to a question that does not actually have a definitive answer um, because that's way more interesting than like yeah nazis are evil let's kill them you know like well yeah yeah we've we've agreed nuremberg we're established good. thing <laughs> like, yeah so so jason josh what, what do you guys feel about bioshock well i to, to be i i'm I, I like to think more recently um bioshock infinite i think is just as um, is it fits just as much into that theory as the original Bioshock does with its there's always a lighthouse there's always a man there's always a city right ba- basically those three tenets are the three tenets of game design there's always a some world that you have to explore there's always some guy that you have to bring down and there's always a certain way that you there's just, there's just certain paths that you have to take every single time no matter what the game is no matter how open they make you seem it make make you think it is or it may seem. You're always following the same paths, and until we break that cycle, if we ever can, I don't know that gaming as a whole can transcend. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, so definitely Bioshock Infinite is another one. Well, I kind of I feel like just the nature of the medium itself. I mean, I would honestly say almost any medium is not going to allow for full uh, freedom of choice. I mean, that would require an infinite amount of work on the part of the developers to even consider doing something that truly gave you the option to do anything um, apart from what they're going to give you. Well, so the, the answer to that is human to human interaction. So, you know, a multiplayer game has an infinite number of values or uh, variables rather. I think it's that we haven't been able to create actual artificial intelligence. We talk about AI, but we haven't created a human brain from metal. (laughs) Right. Um, so and, the game, the game cannot respond, except for in the ways that it was programmed to respond. Whereas human human participants can respond to each other back so, and forth and back and forth and, right. and keep going and going and going. Right. Yeah. So that's why I think there's infinite variable with with multiplayer. But um, I mean that conversation, I'm sure, is over at this point, right? That's just oh yeah, of course. Mm, that's it. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no there's no really. Other place Massive to go with that. I think. I think the interesting thing is to say, who, who can identify, uh, the piece of AI that's going to feel the most like another human. Uh, mm. I think those are always the and and Elizabeth, Bioshock Infinite is a fantastic example of that. Uh, yeah. You know, what what can you do to make this the most like the human experience? Because, you know, we have not, at least yet, recreated the human brain. I'm going to go back to the well. I'm going to go someplace very, very familiar to anyone who's ever heard me speak about video games. <laughs> I know what's coming. I know what's coming. Well, now, Here it comes. 2007. It's 2008. Um, 2008. It, was, it was being developed well before that. What a couple of 
unbelievable years for gaming, right? Yeah. Right. So Braid. Um, <laughs> what? I mean, what can be said about Braid that hasn't been said? Um, by you or by anybody? <laughs> <laughs> but both. Um, no. Um, so Braid. Braid was just just a big surprise for me back uh, in 2008, and I think it it really had a big impact on gaming in general, specifically because of the way it was presented as, um, I think I could call it a, a more intimate exploration of, of human thoughts and emotions, you know, you know, told within the framework of a video game and, and one especially that, that was designed with such a familiar structure. Um, so Braid, for anyone who doesn't know about Braid, uh, looks a lot like Super Mario Brothers um, in terms of how, how it operates, except there are uh, extensive time manipulation mechanics that allow you to, to move time forward and back and um, to, to keep some items protected from, from the effects of this time manipulation and etc. Um, and you had to use these to solve... Uh, what could be very, very difficult, uh, puzzles. Um, and you didn't have to solve them all, but if you did, you, you, you know, you got to see more of the story. Um, but, but the point that I'm trying to make here is that there was such a connection between these mechanics and the story that was told in between levels there were these uh, books on on pedestals in the game that told the story of braid um, that you could read you could choose not to but what was described within those pages was very consonant <laughs> with with what you were actually doing in the game and, and it was very metaphorical i would say the uh, the actual gameplay so uh, I'm, I'm not sure i've actually heard the explanation of that meta narrative clearly before what what would that explanation be spoilers fine Throw well them the thing about braid is that it's never been made abundantly clear what the true meaning of jonathan blow's work was um he's never really admitted to any um correct answer but there are parts of the story that would describe a a man's relationship with with a woman or the the quote-unquote princess um and how you know he wished time could be changed or or there would be mention of of time standing still or or ways to change each other or protect each other from from their own um, you know, ineptitude it, within this relationship. And then there were mentions of this this character's childhood, his home life. And, and it all had to do with a person's development sort of uh, emotionally and um, the way that that these things would affect a person in the same way that maybe these uh mechanics affected time 
uh, in the game. Um, and everything as you're playing really resonates off of every other part of the game design mechanically and narratively. I think, yeah, I think I get where you're going with that. To me, it's so there you can't die when right. you fall in a, a pit of spikes, which would be sort of the real life corollary, making a bad decision in a relationship or whatever it is. You are actually protected from that death by your time change mechanic. The game stops and allows you to just back up time and redo it. And I think the argument that it's putting forward is, thank goodness we don't have that ability in life. Yep. Because mm. we would be such miserable people if we never made mistakes. If we always had the opportunity to go back and do it again correctly. And maybe that, that that's something destructive about games, maybe, is that we have this ability to always end up doing it correctly. Uh, that we ne we never really face the consequence, so to speak, of our actions it's, it's it's true it's actually literally impossible to fail at braid unless you stop playing the game right right you know, eventually you will win like Which, you who will... did that who, who did stop play who stopped playing braid no, that was me. hopefully no one that really was me. josh you never yeah. beat it no and i i don't even remember how far i got because i think i tried three different times and the third time i did get uh, pretty far, but I ended up just stopping. And then years later, I, I just kind of read up on it because I was I, I didn't know what was actually going on um, until I just read sort of a short summary. But well, yeah. first versus node, last versus node. <laughs> <laughs> bum, bum, There's bum. the door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness. The moment for me in Braid, and probably the moment for a lot of people, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is when you're going through all of the obstacles to finally get where you're trying to go. And then the time thing happens on its own and you can't control it anymore. And you start seeing what really happened in this moment. It was right at the end. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Spoiler and, alert. Yeah. Oh, was, Jason, how does it go? It's it, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going through all these obstacles and you finally get into the room and you see the princess and then the time starts backing up and you realize she, you're, she wasn't running to where you could meet her. She was running from you. And the guy in the beginning who had her captive was saving her from you. And the entire game gets turned on its head. And all of those obstacles that you passed before, suddenly you didn't want to pass anymore because now you're the bad guy. I don't know that I've ever played a game that makes – well, maybe not the bad guy. But I don't know if I've ever played a game that turns it on its head like that in a nice. long time, if ever. Has there ever been a game that's that's turned you from the good good guy to the bad guy in one press of a button? I mean I um, – So I, I always love to talk about Splinter Cell Conviction's co-op mode, mm -hmm. which this is a little different. But uh, in their co-op – has anyone played it? I I I haven't f played it all the way through, but I know I, th I know what you're talking about. Okay, so this has to do with playing it all the way through. Maybe I should do this. Hey, by the way, there are going to be spoilers for every game that we talk about in this podcast. <laughs> so yeah. one gigantic spoiler alert for everything. Done. Okay, moving on. So Splinter Cell Conviction. Uh, at the very end, uh, you I don't even remember what the story beat is. Something occurs, 
and you have to fight each other. Uh, and so you both, and so, and it's split screen, right? And so at the, at the end of the Splinter Cell Conviction co-op campaign, you now are in a versus match in an airplane against the person who can see your screen <laughs> sitting right there. Uh, and it's just this wonderful turn where, uh, both of you are, are now enemies and, uh, I th- does that kind of speak to what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the, originally you're going through the entire game of Braid thinking that you're looking for this lost, you're looking for your princess, which people have been doing in games for years. But then all of a sudden you realize that your princess doesn't want you, whereas before, you know, Mario saves Peach because Bowser. But here, this guy wants the princess and the princess wants nothing to do with him. And that, that threw me through a loop. Yeah, I think... I think the the gravity of this switch is that it completely realigns your understanding of of the entire game. Rather than just being like a plot twist, it it alters your your comprehension of everything you've been doing up to that point. Right, you know, it really changes your perspective. I yeah, mean. absolutely. And I also found it interesting. That, and once you consider that. Um, the first chapter you play is chapter two and the last chapter you play is chapter one. So everything that happens in the last thing that you play is actually the beginning of the story, Mm. which again goes to the completely realigning everything that you think about as far as the game is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. There, there hasn't been, I would argue that Bioshock has that a a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Bioshock and braid. But Dan, there was another game right around the same time that I think you you were suggesting uh, kicked off a lot of this ludonarrative concept. Yeah, totally. Portal was a huge game, uh, 2007, right? That was the Orange Box. Yep. Yeah. Um, Two months after Bioshock. And I mean, can we also just pause and talk about the insane value of the Orange Box? I'm still <laughs> blown away by that. Uh, okay, so what was it? Team Fortress Two, Half Life Two. Uh, Half-Life 2 Episodes 1 and 2, the expansions, and Portal. Yeah. 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 Unreal. For the regular cost of a game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, and Portal, I mean, you could get it individually uh, on PC at the time, but for a lot, a lot of gamers, it was just, it was this weird, like, side mission almost to Half-Life, and it had the same mechanical feel about it, but it was so otherworldly in uh, in almost every other way. Um, and there's there, I mean, how many articles have been written about Portal for sure? Uh, I think the smartest ones that I've read, or one or two that I've read, describe Portal as a meta narrative of the tutorial in a game that it's allowing you to, st- as a game designer, from that perspective, step outside of the tutorial itself and see what it looks like to impose a tutorial on a player uh, and the kind of thought process that has to go into that, which is, as it turns out, semi-robotic and and a little bit uh, homicidal yeah. at some level. <laughs> um, and so it's saying, it, well, on top of having this very ingenious mechanic, uh, it's it's saying uh, you you're not clever enough to figure this out. <laughs> you need a lot of help. So let me give it to you real real basic, real straight. 
Uh, and then through the use of, I think the important turn here is through the use of the physics of the game itself, you step outside of the test chamber. You exit the test chamber, and now you're in the scaffolding behind the test chambers, and uh, and that's you know where the game ends. Is you're there and you're seeing the game designer himself, seeing Glados. Uh, and I and you know I, I don't think that that game got so much acclaim for its for that meta narrative piece, um, especially because I think there's a debate about that. I, I'm not sure everyone would would agree that that is the narrative. Uh, I think it was more just a, a super excellent, well designed, well conceived, well executed, uh, well timed game. It was short, and that mm. matters a lot. <laughs> that it didn't overstay its welcome. It just did the beats that it needed to to get you to learn something and then move on and apply it and then learn something. Uh, so it was sort of uh, for a lot of folks, I think it was like a crash course and like this is how to design games efficiently and well. I loved it, and I remember beating it in one sitting at like two in the morning and thinking I was going nuts because it's it's because for that reason, like eventually you think you're just doing stages and at the twentieth stage. Now I'm coming from you know NES Super Nintendo days, so when you get to the last stage. You finish it and you're done. There's credits. There's a really bad splash screen at the end and everything's done. Mm-hmm. But now your reward is she's going to kill you and you have to get out of there. And all of a sudden you're in the you're in the, you're behind the scenes. Like, like like Dan just said, you're 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 about to see the face of the person who's been doing this to you. In this case, a robotic face. And the whole time she's taunting you and making you and making you just really want to get get revenge, I guess you would call it, even though you. It's, she hasn't really done anything other than try to kill you, which I guess is bad. Um, <laughs> only <laughs> that. Only the worst thing you can try to do to a person. <laughs> right. And then once you finally see it, her, depending on how you want to, and you see that it's just a, a, a rogue AI, and then as you kill her, she, she still taunts you with her little pieces as you put them in the fire. <laughs> Everything about this game, I, I I loved it. And the second one, too, although the second one's not portal length, it was a little bit longer, I still feel like it, it kept the same quality of narrative and gameplay together. If anything, I would say it's better, but that's a whole different story. Um, well, so you know what's better about Portal 2 is not Portal 2's single player. Mm. Portal 2's co-op is Portal 2 to me. And I think of the, I mean... I think a lot shorter. of people share that view. Yeah, it's shorter. It's got that portal length kind of, and it has that innovative m- mechanic twist that causes it to be new. Uh, yeah. And even and even the uh, the cooperative part of Portal Two is what has the teaser for Portal any cont- uh, future portals, right? If you finish that, there's like a little thing at the end they show. So that there might be a lot, there might be some some strength to that, in that being the actual Portal Two and port and the single player just being a support story, that people can enjoy, who don't like to play online with people. It's just a platform for British humor, really. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a really really long time since I played through Portal, and I, actually I think it was I haven't played it since maybe like six years. Know. And so <laughs> yeah, God, I feel old. Um, 
so anyway, if I remember, were there not like certain parts of uh, the game, like where you'd be going through and you would see like writing on the wall from previous, um, I don't want to say contestants, but you know, people that are other people that are going through the same thing. Yes, totally. Okay. There are. But like, was, that's where the, was that the, throughout the stages or was that only once you'd gotten into the sort of behind the scenes section? They started uh, popping up the second half of the game. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it just kind of dawned on me. There, there was literally writing on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you kind of like just just go by it a, a lot of the time. Well, and it starts introducing famously the cake is a lie. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, which you could take a number of different ways. I think, um, I think the point is that there's nothing real here. Mm-hmm. That and 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 in in okay, I, I feel like I'm just, just like just Bioshock. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. I'm, not, I'm gonna avoid seeing that entirely. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not even gonna finish that thought. Okay, <laughs> you know where we, where you were going. I I was you know you know it. where I was headed. Because well, I because I agree with okay. you. No, no, because yep. I agree with you. Is that you know it, it's all artifice, essentially. Yeah. Um, Okay, so those those are that's Portal, back in two thousand seven. Um, Jason has a much 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 more recent example. I do. Um, what was it this summer? Uh, I would say late August. Yeah, mid August, yeah. late August. Okay, that's so tell us about it. What's the, the game? game? Is Brothers: A Tale of Two Sons. Um, it is the story of these two little two boys who are brothers, and they have to help their sick father by finding medicine in a far off place. And you control both brothers with one controller. The left side is one brother. The right side is the other. And you solve these puzzles and get through these obstacles with both brothers at once. And you have to use both halves of the controller in harmony. And it's amazing the types of things that you'll do with this controller. And everything match, like everything that you do, every motion that you make matches up completely with what they're doing on the screen. If, if you have to, one part in particular that sticks out, you're, you're tied to each other. The two brothers are tied to each other. Oh, yeah. And you have to swing the one, like there's, there's a bunch of like uh, posts or flagpoles sticking out of, of, a, of a path that you have to go down. So you'll use the left stick to swing the one brother underneath the other brother and grab the pole and then use the right stick for the second brother all the way down the path. It was amazing. And then, towards the end of the game, they kill one of the brothers. Mm. And you're stuck with half a controller for the rest of the game. Once you lose the brother, you can't use that half of your controller. And every time you do, if you forget, the brother on screen becomes panged with some kind of grief or some kind of super, and the screen shakes, and it, it just makes you remember you can't do this. Yeah, you lost you lost half of your team, so half of your controller is useless. Gosh, that's so awesome. But it also is. at it's, times it's devastating. But that's awesome. That there's I, there's I one that. there's one incredible little moment where okay, so earlier in the game, it's a younger brother and an older brother, and yes. there's a significant gap. So the younger brother was what was he afraid to swim across the first river that you came to? So yeah. the older brother got in the water and the the younger brother has to 
hold on to the older brother's back and the and you strictly move with the older brother while you hold on with the younger brother and that's how you would swim you know from that point on Man, that's super and cool then, too and then after the older brother the older brother dies and the one of the first things that you encounter is a, a large body of water um and you you can't progress with your half of the controller so and and you kind of don't know what to do so finally you think well I'm standing in this water. What happens if I press this other button, the, the the older brother button, and he basically gets inspiration from the memory of his older brother and is able to push himself to swim across the water, which it's I nuts. thought was incredible. Yeah, the whole the whole experience is just amazing. It really is. I I'm surprised, Dan, that you haven't played it because perfect it so fits into the stuff that you like it's portal length yeah no kidding <laughs> um, it sounds like it it's portal length it's different and th- there are things in there that you'll talk about for weeks it's such yeah. such an experience and you know the the control method uh is a little difficult to to get into and i found it to be somewhat difficult for for a long time i don't know if other people figure it out and become more adept with it um more quickly than I did, but um, I found myself having to really either concentrate or, or more specifically, trust in my own abilities, like trust my right hand to not like give up when I'm trying to use my left hand. And I, I use the word trust because obviously these brothers are, are working very tightly knit as a team. You know, in that section that Jason described, they're literally one whole, one brother is holding on to a handhold on a wall while the other one is you let go and he swings freely just to reach the next handhold because there's no other way and you know there's there's real trust between these characters and you actually kind of feel like man can I trust my right hand to not screw this up while I'm trying to do something with my left hand so that that tie-in is amazing in terms of the way that they can manipulate your own disconnect between your two halves to to match up with you know two separate um, consciousnesses you know in in the game it's really cool really and cool. then there, there's the part also um, there are times where there's this grate in the wall or it, there's a grate blocking your path and only the little guy is small enough to get through there and there's a part where you literally have to take the little guy and sneak him behind a, a giant troll jailer with a big club. And steal the key so you can unlock the cage behind you. And if you step on a bone and alert the guy, it's a game over. You start back over. But he, if I remember correctly, he crushes the little kid. Like, oh, I, I remember, I, I remember I avoided being like, those bones. I remember being like, uh, no, that, no, that's not what I want. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was bad. But, but, but brothers for me. Is one of those games. It's it's like a good movie. When you're done watching the movie, before you leave the theater, there's that moment of introspection, where you just think to yourself, you 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 process what you just watched. You figure out the reasons why you enjoyed it, so you can tell people later on. You you discern what makes this movie so good. Same with when you finish a book. You shut the book. You put it down. You process. This, for me, is one of the few games that made me do that. I just put the controller down, looked at the title screen, and processed. Yeah. Really cool. So, yeah. I, and I think 
what you're getting at there is this the reason that I really love meta narrative in games and and in any medium, but particularly in games, is because it speaks to a truth of the human experience. That there's something very real emotionally or experientially that it's teasing out and causing you to, in a game, live out a little bit mm-hmm. and experience for yourself so that you can understand it without having to do that yourself. I don't know what it's like to lose a brother, but having played that game, I bet I would have some media-sized molecule of understanding after that of, wow, it's that devastating. It's that it's that dividing. Um, and I think the, and I think all games that really capitalize on meta narrative have that component where they say this is a, this is a real part of life and more more than more likely than not it's something that you can relate with. Mm. You know, this this discussion, it always... I mean, Brothers itself reminded me a lot of um, Team Eco games. And also uh, another game that Josh had on his list. I, I don't know if you're ready to pick a game, but I kind of want to maybe suggest one um, from that game company. It, it kind of reminds me of... Well, Brothers kind of reminds me of Journey. And sure. Journey kind of reminds me of everything Dan just said. So would you say that that's a, still a good example? Yeah, actually it is. Um, I I would say, I think actually within like the last month or so, I actually went back and played it again um, for the first time since it came out. Uh, it was actually, I guess, over a year ago now. And so, I mean, as you guys know, and I'll just kind of flesh this out for anybody that hasn't played it, um, you just start out in the middle of a desert. There is no, you know, preface as to what you're doing there. Um, you know, there's actually not any real uh, description other than your experience itself. And so as you kind of start to go through, you you do, of course, um, kind of uh, meet up with, with another player who has started out the very same way. And you can't really talk. Um, I mean, you can make like little chirping sounds. Um, you know, maybe to get the other player's attention, but that's about it. And so it, I, I remember reading up on, you know, some interviews with them. Uh, Genova Chen is the, is the head honcho over there. And he basically said that sort of the point that they were trying to get across, um, or, or sort of the reason for the game, uh, at all is to force people to communicate in other, you know, ways other than just dialogue. And so that whole game you're going through and you have to work together if you're going to if you're actually going to finish it. But you actually cannot communicate other than just the little chirps. And so uh, it really it, and at the end of it, of course, 
um, when you when you finish, you actually find out that you've you know been playing with multiple people. It's it's not been the same person all along, and you can actually probably tell um, as you go through that it is not the same person just based on how they act, um, how they progress and, and move from place to place. Uh, because some people you'll see just like, you know, absolutely gung ho. They don't, uh, you know, if they've played through before, obviously they may not be as apprehensive or cautious, but on your first playthrough, um, I, I certainly took my time. I didn't rush through anything, but I, uh, would encounter one, you know, somebody else traveling with me who just like, uh, they didn't take any time to, uh, take anything in they were just going forward the whole way and so it's just really neat because when you cut off um the main mode of communication which is of course um vocal that you have to rely on other senses to communicate your message and and to work together and to get through and, and actually i think that game is probably entirely predicated on that so yeah i i really enjoyed it i thought it, it really got its message across well actually agreed <laughs> definitely agreed journey for me is one of those games where it's another one it's another introspection but not so much because it told you a story this is more of a like one of those like take account of your life contemplate your life as it stands right now the because you it's it's this, it's a perfect parallel of a person's true journey you meet people, some anonymous. At the end, you find out who they are, and and well, at the end, you find out who they are. But throughout the game, they're anonymous, and they they can either help you or they can just ignore you, which that's real life. We meet people all the time. You're going through ebbs and flows of this, like where there are parts that are really easy. You're just going through and trying to solve puzzles. There are times where you think you're going to die, like in the in the in the part with the snow, and then all of a sudden you're you're rising through the clouds and ascending into what you've been searching for the entire time. And then all, and then right when you finish it, the credits roll and you start all over again. If that's not a perfect parallel for this plane of existence, I don't know what is. I haven't played a game like it and I don't know that I ever will again. It, it's, it's, it, I, it's hard to explain really how I feel about it. And, and it was a game that I didn't put a lot of faith into. And until one of the E3s where Dan was like, you have to try this now. I'm like, I was, right. it yeah, wasn't you. Eddie. No. no, it was you. Okay, cool. It was Good. you in the, in the, in the, it must've <laughs> been the year after. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there, I, there was, there was the first year when Geneva Chen first announced it and Eddie in a private room, like yeah. just, just talking about it and showed <laughs> like a couple slight videos. And you couldn't, you couldn't talk about it. No, I was like just I was blown afterwards. away. I had to like process the whole thing. I was like, this game, this is gonna be the this, big thing. Yeah. Eventually, when this happens, this is gonna you know make waves, just because of how how uh, powerful and how poignant I think the design of of the gameplay mechanics are and and were um, for what it was trying to express, and I, I think that's. Um, the perfect example just basically everything that they were trying to say was perfectly replicated in the mechanical um interaction with the game yeah and I, and i think it's important that there are so few mechanical options yeah. there too and that you're so i think the the what i took away from a lot of 
a lot of the game, not every part of it, but a lot of it is a sense of being so small. And I think that's part of the human experience too, is that you sure have have moments where you just are a dot on a globe <laughs> and, <laughs> and you look at everything else and the, the world around you and some of the, the, the people that you like or don't like <laughs> flow in and out of your life and you just have this sense of smallness and what do you do with that? Man, uh, that game is so good. <laughs> you know, and I think it's valuable that it does not answer that question. Yeah. If if there is an answer, maybe it's sort of like a humanist, like a keep trucking, like keep going, yay. But um, well, but it's other like than you'll that, find your your way. Like maybe, whatever yeah, but whatever even, happens, even then, I don't, I don't be think that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that the game is really trying to put that forward as an answer, though. I think it's more trying to give you that sense of uh, of being taken aback, of yeah. of wonder. Uh, I wouldn't say that, it's an answer either. I would say it's just an open ended. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a journey, shall I? Say? Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, Josh. <laughs> so guys, so guys, just don't stop believing. That's all. <laughs> The wheel oh. in the sky keeps on turning. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Blowing my mind here. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I want to talk about Heavy Rain. Yes. And to, okay. a, and to, and to a lesser extent, Beyond Two Souls. Yes. But, only because, but only because I'm halfway through. Wait. Uh, both, both of these games are similar in that you're – if they're not very gameplay-oriented – they're they're called interactive movies, or and David Cage is all about emotion and all that stuff. But for me, the actions that it makes you do, and the button presses that are timed with what you have to do and how you have to do it, get me more interested in what I in what I'm doing and what I'm watching than I guess a movie can. Uh, David Cage, believe it or not, might have might be onto something here. Like I did a scene in Beyond last night where I'm being attacked by a scientist who is possessed. I, it's hard to explain. But I, he's, he's, a, he's coming after me and he's attacking me and I have to move Jody the way that opposite of where he's swinging so I don't get hit. And every time I see that red blip that says that I screwed up, I get pissed because I, I don't know how many chances I get. I don't know how many times I'm going to be able to you know, screw up before he actually kills me and I have to do it all over again. So the tension is palpable. And then there are times where I have to fit through a little passage. And in order to do that, I have to step with one foot and hold one button and step with the other foot and hold the other button. And there's a big thing of glass that if I don't do it right, I'll probably cut myself on. I don't know because I did it right. Um, so there's some danger in that too. And I, I feel like and Heavy Rain was the same way. The whole, the whole uh, driving the, in the wrong lane as Ethan, yeah. I screwed that up. Because I never got the I never got the button presses right, and then later on when you have to cut your finger off, and you have to do it, how long? <laughs> how long? Did all of you played Heavy Rain? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. How long did you sit there and and, and think to yourself, "No, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to watch this." Not one second. This. Really? I said, let let that finger fly, baby. Oh no! There I, will be blood. Well, how did you do it? <laughs> How did you? How did you? Well, I thought about the best way to like to make it as uh, painless or as as uh, 
minimally destructive <laughs> as possible. You know, I thought about, you know, getting something to to cauterize the wound and blah 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 and to to reduce pain. You know, to if I had to do it, I was going to do it at, in as controlled a manner as possible because the game gave me all these different options. Oh, I just grabbed a pair of pliers and went at it. Maybe that's why. Josh, it sounds like you have some real experience with Heavy Rain or perhaps just a deep love for Heavy Rain. Yeah, I love that game. And, and I, of course, more recently played Beyond Two Souls and I love that game. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know that I would call myself a David Cage fanboy, but um, probably close. An and, apologist, if nothing else. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I kind of like, like Jason was talking about, these are, um, for lack of a better term, interactive movies. And um, something that kind of bothers me uh, in a lot of the criticism is, is people say, oh, well, your decisions don't really matter. But I would, I would argue that some of them do and, and uh, some of them don't, but that's kind of way, the way it works in real life, right? Um, I mean, you can make a decision on what you're going to have for breakfast, but that's probably not going to influence anything else in the rest of your life. And there are decisions that you make within this game uh, that are just that way. But um, Greg Miller of IGN, I think, he said it pretty well, but he was actually talking about uh, The Walking Dead when he said this, but I think it it probably applies to uh, Beyond as well. And it's that uh, basically you are, uh, we're all like, we have our own coloring books. And so we have the same basic picture and outline, but it's up to us to decide how we want to color it and how we want to uh, design everything. And so while we may have some similar experiences at the same time, they're going to be, you know, a, a bit different. They're going to be color- colored in a different light. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I really liked that game. Actually, I, I would probably give it like a nine out of 10 if I had to put it on a quantitative scale but so, uh so i think my tension there is the piece that you were talking about where you're saying that some decisions matter a lot and some don't i i never felt like i knew which decisions were going to matter a lot or not a lot in heavy rain i haven't played beyond uh it always seems to me a little bit arbitrary which of the decisions ended up being like a big deal there were some where it was like pretty obvious. But, but did that did that unknown nature kind of make you feel like they were all a big deal because any one of them could? Yeah, be it did. It did. And to me, that does not mirror hum, human experience. Mm. <laughs> like I yes, that's like, true. You kind yeah, of. I was like, decision you, where should I put this grocery? Like, how should I wash these dishes? Like, <laughs> is that going to affect how my wife thinks about me? Am I getting a divorce? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's not how hey, I think I've about. Hey, I've asked that question. <laughs> those things are important to be fair i have not been married so yeah i can't really speak to that the the coolest thing about heavy rain to me is that right after i finished it i was able to talk i talked to three or four different people who had also finished it and every single one of us had a different outcome yeah exactly that to me is perfect because there are things that they saw even like in the middle of the game that I didn't see. And then at the end of the game, it shows you the list of things that you can do and what 
like what happens where, and then you can go back and try and do it, but that's no fun. That's another. That's probably the one big problem with Heavy Rain and Beyond. You play it once, and even though there are other things that you can do, unless you're a trophy hunter, you're never going to do it. Well, I think you... that's part of part of this discussion, though, is uh, that in real life you you do things once and you live with your decisions, and that's that's your story, and then it's over. Right. Okay. Okay, yeah, I, I, I get here's, that. Here's another corollary. So when I played Heavy Rain, it was well after the release, and someone had already told me the ending. That, oh, awesome. The origami <laughs> killer was. Mm, so I, it might have been, been a versus node thing. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> who ruins it, that? I don't know. I, it was like long enough afterwards to where, as someone who writes about games, I probably should have been expected to know already, you know, it's like the onus is on me at that point. I'm not worried about the person who told me the point being knowing that the whole thing was very anticlimactic. Like the, it was, I really was not sucked into that game because the whole time I knew it well, was yeah. that one guy. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. It, so, so life sucks. Yeah. So if you're, if, <laughs> to, to it, I would say if you knew how your life was going to unfold, how awful would that be? Oh, right. Anticlimactic for sure. <laughs> it would be as anticlimactic yeah. as heavy rain, knowing that. Well, you know, it would be awful. Is the killer is you know, it'd be awful is that you'd try to escape it the whole time. Yeah, for and sure. and it would end right. up happening anyways. Yeah, if if I ever had the opportunity to see how I died, the only thing I'd want to look at is the date and time. <laughs> oh God! I was... So I knew. So that you could take as many vacations as exactly. (laughs) No, just just to make sure that you're wearing something nice on the day. Sure, you know. No, no. In all seriousness, I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's some, there's some uh, value to me in knowing how much time you have left. So you make sure, like a definitive amount of time. But that, well, we're way off base here. We are. Um, So all all the sudden, I've got a question for all you guys. Actually, which which ending did you guys get? Um, like when you finished Heavy Rain, were all of your characters still alive, or did anybody well, die? Except for, the, except for the one that has to die. Yes, that was uh the detective, um, the, the origami killer himself. Yeah, Mr. Shelby. Yeah, I I did not see that coming. That completely. That reveals pretty awesome too. I honestly forget what my ending was. My I, ending. I think uh, Jason was still alive. I I saved him. <laughs> yeah, I saved him. No. Wait, yeah, Jason. So you, and then yeah. you never played the yeah. rest Jason. of the game. Yeah, he was a cyborg at the end. It was great. <laughs> I just, you know, saved him at the mall, and that was game over. It's like the Shiba Inu. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Shiba Inu ending of Silent Hill 2. Jason is a cyborg. That would be the ultimate game. Is It has so much freedom that it can just end after a couple of minutes because you do everything correctly. <laughs> Never introduced like eliminate the conflict. I would argue that Chrono Trigger was like that. Yeah, you did the last boss whenever you wanted to. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, also a good point. And I just wanted to add one other game. Uh, Amnesia, The Dark Descent, I think, nope. does an excellent job. Nope. <laughs> Not even once. No? Can't do it? No, you're, I, another, you're another you, Jason? Oh man, my uh, yeah, a friend of mine actually gifted it to me on Steam, and and I I think I played for like all of like two or three minutes, and nope, backing out. And yeah. which I would argue is because it's so effective at exactly. what it does. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because not only 
is it telling you the story of someone's situation where they're entirely fearful, but you are embodying that character 100% all the way. And you probably didn't even, I mean, if you only played for a few minutes, you, you kind of missed out on all of the mechanics that, that really do that to you. Um, there's a variety of things that, that really draws you in. So first of all, the way you interact with the world is entirely physics-based. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're doing all the pushing and pulling and moving and turning of everything right there with your mouse. And it's all, it's all one-to-one. It's what I wish that we could be more frequently, but we'll, we won't go there. Um, and then you have the insanity effects and, and the effects with, with light and darkness where if you're in the dark for too long, you, you kind of freak out and go insane because you're in this terrifying unknown place with no recollection of why or, or how. Right. Um, and you, you have to manage light because, because you, you have limited, um, fuel for that. And then when it comes to the main threats, which you are utterly helpless against, which makes complete sense because why would you, uh, just a, a chump be able to combat otherworldly monsters, right? Um, that they're so dangerous and you're you're instantly terrified just from the mystery of them all uh which is which is uh exacerbated by the fact that you can't even look at them without going insane so you you catch a slight glimpse it's like the slender man you you catch a glimpse and you're like you can't you can't even look um you have to run away so that's another nope yeah, <laughs> exactly. But these games, they they really tap into the the real fear inside of you while playing, and and that is just perfect. That is just perfect. To so me. yeah, and I think horror, a lot of horror games have started doing what what I would call the opposite of a power fantasy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, total disempowerment. The disempowerment fantasy, which which would in any case where it's done well, be an instance of ludonarrative consonance. Absolutely. Where you're, where you're saying, hey, I'm taking something away from you, and by doing so, I am creating an emergent narrative whereby you are instantly terrified. Slender Man being a good example for sure. Yeah. So um, usually... I was even a little bit terrified by Dear Esther. I thought like at some point, Dear Esther, something was going to happen, <laughs> you know? It didn't, but yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nothing happens in that game. Well, I mean, the narrative, but and the oh dear Esther. I would argue the same thing with going home. Yes, sorry, that that would be an even better. You think something crazy that. is going to happen in going yep. home, and then it doesn't, and it just becomes a very sweet lifetime movie. Oh. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing at all.
So the opposite then of the disempowerment fantasy is the power fantasy, which there are tons of also good examples of uh, someone using uh, either using a, a dissonance to express some consonants or a consonance itself. Um, and I think the most recent example that most people think of is probably Far Cry 3, where they were saying you you gain all of this power and in doing so it becomes this destructive force that you become like the people that you are killing, right? Um, and I think Mark of the Ninja is a, a similar thread to it. Dishonored has a similar thread to it. I'm sort of looking down our list here. A lot of these power fantasy games go through that same trajectory of eventually you are evil or bad in some some sense because you have gained and amassed all of this power. Or at least you have the option to be that way. I, the would, other, throw, oh, I, would, I would throw Infamous and Infamous 2 into yep. that. Yep, yep, yep. Dishonored had something else going for it too in that it gave you these these worlds that were entirely practical in terms of um, navigating them and doing what you wanted to do. It was it was very open in a very directed way, which is somewhat unique. And um, I think it was it was almost understated until you you delved into it and and realized exactly what was available to you in that game. And and if you really got into it and really played with with all of the different options, you found a lot going on there with that story and and I found myself kind of creating my own tale of who I was in that game. Uh it is it was just a really excellent emergent narrative and um yeah, there's definitely some consonants going on throughout. For sure, yeah, and and I think the Tomb Raider reboot also had some of that that going on, although it didn't really. I think it, I think it, it lost. I think it lost a lot of it. It, it kind of devolved for me. Yeah, into something very uh, routine as it as it continued on. Yeah, but I think the early eventually hit that sections certainly. I think we also would probably be remiss to not mention Assassin's Creed, the series, the whole conceit of the Animus being uh, a meta narrative piece. I think a lot of folks would argue, though, that there's a lot more dissonance that comes with that than there is consonance, that there's a lot of like plot holes and there's a lot yeah. of like, well, this doesn't track if this is this. So, uh, but it's, it's worth mentioning because it's one of the most obvious meta narrative constructs in modern gaming and well the assassin's creed series is interesting to me because as much as you know as good as all the games are i think once they started to become a a grand theft auto style open world follow lines to dots sort of game design they lost a lot of a lot of the consonants that i was hoping for um beginning with the first assassin's creed because your goals in in Assassin's Creed were were very singular, um, and as you played through the game, everything that you did was with intent um, and without distraction. So, especially if you if you really wanted to sort of role play with it, you could turn off um, a lot of the the markers and such, and just use what was told to you through dialogue to discover the the facts and the details about your targets 
gain your information through your your eavesdrops and and pickpocketing and and it became a little uh, monotonous sure that was a big complaint about the game but i think that the approach to marking your target um doing reconnaissance on your target and then finally killing each target with those being your your very clear goals throughout was was an example of of really drawing you into the game connecting what you were doing with what the game was was telling you through its story and and being highly consonant uh in its in its narrative ludo narrative totally yeah my understanding is that assassin's creed 4 the animus uh modern day piece is done from a game development studio is that right yeah Has anyone played it i haven't played it but that's what i read and it's, it's actually first person i think yeah um, and so, like they're using the animus in like i guess all the memories that desmond had in his dna to make a game yeah apparently and apparently all the uh interaction between them in emails and stuff is very like tongue-in-cheek to the development process a game all. that will destroy the world one pope at a time oh my goodness um <laughs> The last, the last game that I want to mention, and then I'm super fine. I, I have gotten it all off of my Because <laughs> this is like, this is like my dream podcast. I love Bioshock. talking about this. Clearly, there's a game called Bioshock. No, <laughs> maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> maybe you've heard of it when I talked about it this entire time. Um, is a game called Octodad. It's not even out. The, the, the full like Octodad Deadly sketch. Oh, you're so but, right. <laughs> but, okay, here's the wonderful thing about Octodad. If you've not played it, uh, you are an octopus who is who is also a human father. Um, but you are also an octopus, and you play as the octopus. Uh, and you have a human family, and you attempt to do the things that a human father has to do. Uh, and and by the way, you can get Octodad, like the the first piece of it, which is more like a test case than anything else, but you can get that for free online. Um, Dadliest Catch is coming out soon. Um, so the controls are intentionally very confounding. Uh, for example, just walking, you have to hold, I want to say R2 on a like a PS2, PS3 controller, hold R2, to lift the leg and then use the right joystick to move the leg and then release R2 to drop the leg. And it's the same way with the arms. And you always have to do like these really fine motor skill tasks or tasks that you didn't realize had fine motor skill involved, like putting on a hat. Or there's one where it's like, hey, find this key that's under these cushions in this couch. And so you go to, like, lift a cushion, and then you just clear the entire couch. You just, your whole arm just sweeps. It. Like, you're just, I mean, you're just a big, clumsy octopus. And what's wonderful about that, I've, and I've heard one of the the uh, the developers talk about this, is it's, it's sort of supposed to mirror what, it, what it's like to be a father, that you just feel so inept. You yeah. feel like you're so out of control so much of the time. That doesn't mean that you don't love it as much, that you don't cherish every bit of it, uh, but it does mean that you feel very inadequate to the task. Yeah. Uh, so and much the, learning to do, so much. Yeah, yeah. and and to me that that humility is really wonderful. Like that that sense of breaking you down, and, you know, putting you on that level is really great. Uh, so 
I'm all about Absolutely. that. Octopi. So yeah, I think that pretty much covers what we're trying to talk about here today. And we'll be back as soon as we can with more from this generation of consoles. Um, and by that time, we'll probably have some new consoles to play with uh, and not yet talk about because we still want to live in the past. Uh, <laughs> so um, There will be games to talk about, though. I have a feeling that a week after PS4 comes out, whoever among us is getting it will be talking about Contrast. Yeah. Contrast? Mm-hmm. Contrast is that a game? Is, a, is, is that a, the newest Contra? No. Contrast <laughs> is a is a It's a Lightroom p- adjustment, right? Adobe no. <laughs> Photoshop Lightroom. Contrast <laughs> is a three D slash two D puzzle platformer coming to the PS4 through PSN where you play as the imaginary friend of a little girl in nineteen twenties vaudevillian France. And in order to solve puzzles, you become her shadow on the wall. Oh, yep. I mean, Lost. they already made Lost in Shadow, but yes. Is this the same people? No, no, but I'm just saying that that game exists. To me, I mean, uh, certainly they could do it, like, way better and redeem the idea, but, yeah. Well, we'll talk in two weeks. There you go. Because Jason's going to have it. I do, yay. Yay. That's actually a good question. Who are, any, are either of you getting either console at launch? Uh, I originally had the PS4 pre-ordered through Amazon, but then I decided uh, I can't really commit that much money, and especially once the you know Watch Dogs was delayed, there's just nothing that I really care about right now. It is a super weak launch lineup. Yeah, I'll wait until like later. But I did get a MacBook Air, which means my I old, saw that. That's awesome. My old Asus can get stripped down to basically Steam and a bunch of games and stuck connected to my TV. Nice. Nice. In Steam picture mode. Steam box, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have so many fucking Steam games, it's ridiculous. Me too. It's <laughs> bad. I'm going to play the shit out of them. It's, I've, I, you know what? I don't even need any more games to ever be released. I have enough games to play at this point to last me to the end of my life and <laughs> then some. It's yeah, I probably true. do too, unfortunately. But they keep coming out with stuff that I want to play. Yeah. I think all developers should take three years off. And like, <laughs> we could all catch up. And, and then, then when they release that, whatever it is in three years, it's going to be like, pow. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Ludo narrative consonants everywhere. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, guys. So, yeah, that, that wraps it up. Um, thanks, Jason. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody, for listening, more so than us for talking. Um, If you like what you heard, please uh, review us and rate us and subscribe to us and all those fun things. And and, uh, come check out Gamernode.com. Always adding some new stuff. And that's about it. We'll be back probably within two weeks' time with another episode talking about the seventh generation some more. See you then. Peace. 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 Peace.